can be seated. We are continuing our series on the letter, Paul's letter to the Colossians, and uh, we started this two weeks ago and looked at verses 1 through 8, and today we're looking at verses 9 through 14. In that first message, we learned about the establishment of this countercultural revolutionary community in the city of Colossae, this small city in the Roman Empire that was marked by, if you'll remember, faith, love, and hope. And Paul opens this letter by saying, look, I give thanks to God because you're there. Because the fact that you exist as a community in Colossae is a, it represents the reality that God's power is at work, that the gospel is bearing fruit in your lives, and I'm thankful to God for this. And then he turns as after that opening Thanksgiving in verse 8, starting in verse 9, and he reveals that he is praying for them. He says in verse 9, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So this is a continual matter of prayer. And, uh, and then he lets them know what he's praying. You know, you often find people will say, hey, I'm praying for you, which is great, but you don't know what they're praying for you. Uh, sometimes people pray things for you that they would never tell you. Um, I'm sure parents do that for kids all the time. But Paul says, I want to tell you what I'm praying for you. And, uh, and then he opens up his heart for them. This is a letter about maturity. It's a letter about growing to maturity in Christ. And so when Paul prays and lets us in on his prayer, he's showing us this is the prayer really of the heart of God for his church. For his church to grow up to maturity, these are the things that matter. And uh, in his prayer, he, he lays out some elements that I would say are essential elements in the Christian life. These are central dimensions of what it is for us to grow to maturity. So I'd I'd say it this way, if if you want to grow to maturity in Jesus, and if you want Park Street Church to grow to maturity in Jesus, or your home church if you're visiting us from somewhere else, um, then this is a good prayer for us to listen to and to model our our own prayers on. So three dimensions, and we'll take them in turn, knowledge, power, and thanksgiving. Knowledge, power, and thanksgiving. So first, knowledge. Knowledge. This is how Paul begins. He says, asking that you may be, this is verse 9, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul's opening petition in his prayers for this church that he longs to grow to maturity is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Understanding the will of God is a central dimension of coming to life more and more. And this makes sense, honestly. A rejection of God's will leads to death. We know this from Genesis 3, from the scene in the garden. God had given them his will about not eating from this one tree. They eat from this tree, and it leads to their spiritual and physical death. And this has been the story of humanity ever since. We usurp the will of God and find that this brings not the life that it falsely promises. In that case, you will become like God, but that it diminishes life, the life that we have, or you will surely die in Genesis 3. Consider the proverb mentioned twice in the Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So Paul longs for them to know and be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That includes knowing how to live. One of the things that we get from the scriptures is a sense of how we are to live in our creator's world. God made it, God designed it, 
and he gives us guidance for our lives. But it goes beyond just knowing how to live. It actually means understanding God's heart for his world. God's heart to see reconciliation and renewal expand throughout, throughout his, his known world through the ministry of the gospel and bearing witness to the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. And knowing that will that God has for his world is a deeper way of even knowing God himself. You'll see that Paul actually finishes in verse 10 with increasing in the knowledge of God. There's something about being filled with his will, a knowledge of his will, that then leads us to know him as a person, uh, as the triune God, even more deeply in our lives. We are to know him as a God of rescue and a God of life. The mode of our knowledge, if you look with me back at verse 9, he says, filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's helpful to just stop here because we use that word spiritual to describe a kind, like a slice of, of current life, right? The, the, the thing that happens in the church or in the mosque or in the synagogue. It's the thing that happens like with, you know, new agey things. Spirituality is that kind of thing. And it's a, this, this little siphoned off dimension of life. But that's not the way that Paul means this word here. To say that something is spiritual in the New Testament actually connects it deeply with reality as reality actually is, as God has made it to be. Eugene Peterson, who many of you will know as the author of the paraphrase translation, The Message, was also a, a theologian, and he wrote his magnum opus, his a five-volume work that he called a, a spiritual theology. And so he'd occasionally get asked, well, what, is, what do you mean by spiritual theology? And this is an interview uh, the year before he died, and he died in 2018, this was in 2017, he says this, he says, spiritual theology is simply theology lived. A great deal of theology has to do with doctrine, with getting it right. Spiritual theology aims to bring that together within a lived life. There is no disembodied Christian truth. There is no abstraction about the Christian life. It is all intended to be lived in a coherent way. So when Paul says spiritual wisdom and understanding, it's fair to understand this. Wisdom and understanding in the Old Testament deal with how we live. Wisdom is all about living life in accordance with God's created order. And when Paul says spiritual wisdom and understanding, he's saying the knowledge of God's will is not some set of abstract principles or abstract truths, not just some special insight into special mysteries or future times, but it is down-to-earth, nitty-gritty, practical understanding that impacts the way that you and I live every day the way that we interface with our family members, our spouses, our neighbors, our co-workers, the way that we spend our time and spend our money, the way that we choose what to be entertained by, how to interface with the internet and with technology. All of these things are things that come about through our own spiritual wisdom and understanding of our knowledge of the will of God. This is a very practical prayer that Paul is praying here. And, and we know that by going on in verse 10. If you doubt just that little exposition of spiritual wisdom and understanding, then think about what he says next. Why does he want them to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God? So, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul wants them to walk in a new kind of life. And I mean, isn't this our heart for one another in the church? That we'd walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To live a, a worthy life is not suggesting that somehow your life is now worthy of God loving you. That's not it at all. It's actually, it's to live a life that's a fitting response to the radical love and grace of God that's been expressed to you and offered to you in the gift of God's Son, Jesus. 
That's what it means to live a life that's worthy. It balances, if you will, it's fitting with what God has done on your behalf. And Paul describes it further as fully pleasing to him. That word fully is actually unrelenting in its application, isn't it? It means no compartmentalization in your lives. There's no part of your life that's not subject to his lordship in which you're not called to use that part of your life for his glory and honor to please him. And a life that is worthy is a life that's pleasing him in every dimension of our lives, or at least is growing in that direction. Of course, none of us do this perfectly to please him. And Paul describes this life that pleases the Lord as bearing fruit in every good work at the end of verse 10 and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a fruit-bearing life. And this is actually the second time in just the, the, the first 10 verses of the letter now that Paul has gone to this metaphor of bearing fruit. Look back with me at verse 6. I should have encouraged you to open up your Bible with me. Uh, As indeed in the whole world, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. So there it is. And then again here in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. And this image of fruit bearing is actually very significant biblically. And it's significant in a a way that that bears witness against the culture around us. The empires of the world always promise fertility and fruitfulness. Be that Egypt long ago, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, and now the Roman Empire around the church in Colossae. They promise a life of fruit bearing and fullness. Only those promises are made on the basis of military might and oppressive social structures. And a kind of life is only good for the select few mentality. And against the the promises of fruitfulness in the empires of this world, there has been always this little radical ragtag group of people known as the people of God who had believed that there was a different vision for what it meant to bear fruit, a different way to bear fruit, a different path to, to fullness than the path that was on offer in the cultures around them. And that was the people of God. And they understood that God was the author and creator of all things. And that God had brought them into relationship with him in a very special way. And that he had given them his life and his law and his understanding, his revelation. And he had shown them the way to live truly full and fruit-bearing lives. And that fruit-bearing metaphor gets picked up throughout the Old Testament. Think of Psalm 1. He is like a tree, this man who, who meditates upon the instruction of God. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And that fruit bearing of the people of God was defined around a life of neighborliness, love your neighbor as yourself. It was defined by a life of justice and mercy, of care for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. All those people who in all the empires and their promises of fruitfulness would have been long forgotten or the fruitfulness of the chosen would have been on the backs of those who were in those categories of the marginalized and oppressed. Not for God, not for the people of God, this radical counterculture. Well, then all of that promise of fruit bearing in the Old Testament gets fulfilled when Jesus comes on the scene and inaugurates this this new kingdom under the rule of God in which the tree will be known by its fruit, he says, in which the seed will be sown and it will bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. The, The radical vision of fruit bearing is picked up in the New Testament and fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus so that now where real fruit is born, Paul is saying, is fruit is born in your lives, in this little community that would have been excluded and marginalized in Roman Colossae. That's where real fruit is happening and being born. It's through your radical life together as you love one another, as you care for one another, as you care for the poor, as you embody the heart of God, this is where real fruit is happening. Not in the Roman Empire, 
And I wonder as we think about this call of a life that is fully pleasing to the Lord, to live in a manner worthy of him, that bears fruit in every good work, can we think about the contrasting visions of fruit bearing in our culture today? Because they're there, and they're common, and they're not inherently evil, I should say, but when they become the main thing in our lives, they can detract us and distract us from the real place of bearing fruit. Often it's a life of convenience or comfort or wealth and these things that we have to get to secure those kinds of lives in our culture around us I mean in Boston what's what's the life to fruit bearing it's academic education I mean we it's what we export to the world it's the air that we breathe and if you don't think that try raising children here in Boston and thinking about how much of an emphasis we put on that in their lives again that emphasis can be well and good but when it becomes a substitute for or a replacement of the real call of what it means to bear fruit, which is a life that's wonderfully connected with Jesus and his people, that then manifests itself in a life of love shaped by the cross, then the competing vision actually becomes a distortion, doesn't it? Again, we can enter into these spheres of this world. Some of you are well advanced in your, in your academic work, and that's wonderful. Your professional work, that's great. That's a part of the call of God on your life and on mine. It is to be faithful and to pursue those things with excellence. But they are not the means by which fruit is born, primarily, in the world. And the world would have us believe that. Paul's saying, no. The vision for fruit bearing comes out of this amazing gospel about a crucified Messiah Does that make sense? Not really. The wisdom of the world is made folly by this wisdom. And yet there is where real fruit is being born. And he longs for these people that he's praying for in Colossae. He's never met them. He longs for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they could come to bear this kind of fruit. You can't bear that fruit without knowing his will. So it begs this next question before we shift to our next point. But where do, we, where do we know and understand and learn the will of God? Where does this take place in our lives? And I, what we would say as the church today is it takes place in the, in the scriptures of God. That we could never know God's will if it weren't for his graciousness to reveal it to us. And we read this out of Deuteronomy 6 actually about the old covenant community. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You are to be a people saturated by my word, God says. Put it everywhere around you. Talk of it and when you rise up and when you walk out the door and when you come home, speak of this word. Be saturated in this word. Are we a word-saturated community? Because that's how we will come to know his will more and more fully. And let me say this, because there's an issue underneath the issue. It's one thing to know that we understand and get to deepen in our understanding of God's will by knowing his word. It's another thing to address the question of desire. Do you really want to know his will? It's easy to be surrounded by, even in the church, to be surrounded by a community that says we uphold this, this Bible as God's word and, and to be maybe surrounded by that in your home. But then there's this question of the heart. of do we, do we want to know his will? Or are we more content with just letting our will prevail, which won't bear fruit, and just kind of letting these words bounce off? And, and so I just ask you that question. Maybe we'll come back to the heart as we get to our third point in, in this message. 
But it's one thing to be saturated with the word or to be surrounded by it. It's another thing to have a heart that is open to it. As Jesus says, good soil in which that word can bear fruit or take root and then bear fruit. What are you being saturated by? Is it entertainment? Music? Advertisements? Political discourse that you read on your favorite blogs or news websites? Maybe the 24-hour news cycle just on the TV? These things can actually deeply impact us. I have this conversation with my teenage children regularly. What you listen to, it's not just about the good beat. The lyrics can actually impact you and shape you, that we're being fed these things constantly. And I just ask you, are you being saturated in the word of God? That is where we find and are filled by the will of God together. So let's move to the second thing in verse 11, which is power. Because I can almost hear the Colossians at this point of Paul's prayer going, okay, great. You want us to live a life that's fully pleasing to the Lord? <laughs> like, you want us to bear fruit in every good work? And I mean, this is a great vision, Paul, but you've never met us before, first of all. Like, you don't know the issues that we struggle with in our lives day by day. And so this lofty prayer just seems a little bit far-fetched for us, Paul. And it's almost like he anticipates that objection as he continues in verse 11 on the theme of power, being strengthened, he prays, with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. How can we grow in this kind of worthy life, a life that is fitting with the grace of God operative in our lives? It is through and only through the power of God. That's, that's really good news, by the way. It is through the power of God, the God who rescued, rescued Israel out of Egypt, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the God who created us anew in Christ Jesus, the God who will transform us to glory at the end of the age, this God, this God who's done all of these amazing things, this God is our power and our strength. And Paul prays that they would be strengthened in power. Now you might be sitting here thinking, well, the power of God feels very distant to me. If, there, if my life is marked by anything, it's marked by weakness. And I would say to you, amen. You're right in the right spot to experience the power of God. And this is the paradox of God's power. We tend to think of power as overcoming and we're always on top. And I want you to be suspicious of anybody who, who proclaims Jesus and just comes to you like they've got everything figured out. Because the life of following Jesus is a life of bearing the cross. It's a life of weakness. And if you don't believe me, let's just check in with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. This, this whole epistle is beautiful on this theme of power and weakness. And listen to what Paul says, just three quick uh, glimpses into 2 Corinthians. He opens in chapter 1, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. God seems to specialize in putting us in places where our weakness is showcased so that we learn not to depend and lean upon our own strength and resources, but to lean on his power, which is inexhaustible and unlimited. Chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Do you feel like a jar of clay? I know I do. It's good for us to feel that way. 
to remember that the power in us is not our own strength and power. It's the power of God at work in us. And then he, in, toward the end of the letter, he said to me, that as Jesus said to me, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is the paradox of the Christian life. It is that as we are weak, we are strong. As we are at our limits, we are most alive. As we are being poured out to death in this, for, for love for our enemies even and for the marginalized and for people, our neighbors and for our brothers and sisters in this community, that's when the power of God is most at work in us. It's very paradoxical. And so as Paul prays for the Colossians that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, He's praying for this power that is manifest in their weakness to be made known. And look what he says it's for at the end of verse 11. For all endurance and patience. That fits with the idea of weakness and struggle and challenge. It's as if Paul's saying this life of becoming a fruit bearer is not going to be easy. It's not like the wind is always at your back, but actually it's a challenge. And for that challenge, there is a power. And it's the power of God that enables you to now walk forward in that challenge. Whatever the challenge it is that you're facing in your life, God's power is at work in you to help you walk through that, to endure, he says, for endurance and patience. It's not a power that he gives us to escape, but it's a power that he gives us to bear up. The temptation always in the life of discipleship, and it would have been no different for them as it is for us today, is the temptation to give up. It's the temptation to step out. It's the temptation to say, well, you know, I've tried to live by your will, but I think it's gonna, I'm just going to have to take matters into my own hands. It's to stop enduring in the life of faith and to begin to live life on our own terms. But the power is there. You know, I recently heard someone describing her spouse in a beautiful way, beautiful to me, when he had serious bouts with depression and felt awful on the inside. She says, you know, I watched him get up every day and continue the work that was before him. And in his case, it was work around explicit ministry things. And I just thought, that's an amazing, amazing testimony of the power of God at work in someone's life. It's not the testimony you think you're going to hear. Uh, you know, I'm struggling with depression, and this is really difficult. But it is a testimony of the power that enables us to endure, to press in, to press forward. And I was really deeply struck by that. It's a picture of the power of God. I would say this to you, that one of the beautiful things about Park Street Church, about our community, is we are an intergenerational community. And I just want to say this, that for any of you who would consider yourselves in the older generation, and I'm not going to put you there if you don't want to be there, um, but I will say what a gift you are to the church, because we get to see an example in you of this kind of power for endurance and patience. Because as you have stayed faithful into your 70s and 80s, and some of you in your 90s, you say to us, you can continue on, you can press forward, you can press ahead and walk with Jesus and he's worth it. Don't give up. And we need the witness of your power, of the power of God in you, through you, in this community, for those of us who are younger to follow in your footsteps. Thank you for your witness to the power of God by simply staying faithful. Maybe you feel so weak, you probably feel like you haven't done it that well, but the fact that you're still here is a witness to the power of God. And it's great. 
Then Paul says with joy, and I left it out because we don't know if it goes with verse 11 or verse 12. It can go either in the Greek, so you could take it, ESV takes it here, uh, the NIV takes it with giving thanks. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that this life has a reservoir of joy because of what God has done for us in his son. So whether it's with endurance and patience, for endurance and patience with joy, isn't that a great picture of of pressing on, staying under the yoke of Christ, continuing forward in the faithfulness day by day, and being able to have joy whatever the trials might be. Not joy because of the things being hard, but joy because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Or to say with joy giving thanks, which is where we're going for our third point here, but that there is a sense of, you know, we are just overwhelmed, God, at what you've done in our lives. And so this continues to be a feature. So let's turn then from knowledge filled with the, with the knowledge of his will, to, from power, being strengthened with all power, then finally in verses 12 through 14 to thanksgiving. Giving thanks, Paul says, verse 12, to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And by the way, thanksgiving, just before we look at this part of the text, thanksgiving is a central dimension of a mature life in God, of a life that is fully pleasing to him. In Psalm 50, God is upset with his people because they're wandering away from his will. They're doing their own thing. And they're, bring, they're still bringing their religious sacrifices and offerings. He says, look, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your burnt offerings. But what he says I really want from you is I want a sacrifice of what? Of thanksgiving. He says it twice in Psalm 50. The one who offers sacrifices as thanksgiving glorifies me. That psalm ends with. So this is a part of the life that's pleasing to him, is a life of giving thanks. And this is where Paul turns, having kind of given them the picture of a full fruit-bearing life that is informed by the will of God as they walk in that life-giving will, and then a life that's empowered as they struggle and, and, and walk with patience and endurance. He then says, I want this life, and this is a theme of the whole letter to the church in Colossae, is thanksgiving, but I, this life is to be marked by giving thanks. And this then sustains his writing from here all the way to verse 23. So we're only going to look up to verse 14 right now, but... Next week, we'll come back and look at this amazing reality because he says, give thanks not only for what God has done in the past, which is verses 12 through 14, but then verses 15 through 23, it's give thanks for who Jesus is in the present and who he is in our lives, verses 21 to 23. So we'll come back to that next week. But just thinking about what God has done in the past, because that's where, uh, where we are today. He's qualified you. He's rescued you. Actually, this, you know, amazing gift of being part of the fruit-bearing kingdom of God, you actually weren't qualified for this. Neither was I. Like, none of us took the SAT and got a high enough score that we could get into this, you know, this kingdom. He says he's qualified you. We were disqualified because of sin. We were at enmity with God. We were cut off from the life, the only life that there really is. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus has dealt with sin and brought about this great fruit-bearing reality of the kingdom of God. And he's qualified us now by cleansing us and inviting us into this true kingdom. And you and I have been invited in. We've been qualified by him. And he says to share in the inheritance. This inheritance is the whole of the new creation. The empires of the world call you into fruit-bearing by their em- the, the standards of the empire. But let me say, those things come and go as we watch over history. Empires rise and empires fall. But the kingdom of our God stands forever. And you've been given an inheritance in this amazing 
fruit-bearing, new creation reality of God's kingdom that can never fade. And he says it's inheritance with the saints in light. Notice in verse 13 that you've been transferred out of the domain of darkness. You've been brought into light with the saints in light, meaning there's no self-deception. There's no demonic deception. Paul believed that there were powers, as we do, there are powers of evil uh, unleashed in the world that hold people in bondage and captive to self-mutilation, self-destruction. And we see them at work in our culture of death all around us. No, you've been rescued into the, to the light. You've been qualified to share in this wonderful kingdom of light. It is the truth that sets you free. And you are now on the inside of this great work, now and forever. In verse 13, you were delivered from the domain of darkness. The word there is domain is authority. It's like an executive authority like Egypt long ago in Israel holding them in bondage. Well, the domain of darkness was holding us in bondage and you've been delivered and set free, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, now enjoying his protection, his power, his benevolence, and his blessings in your life. It is a kingdom of life and wholeness and healing. So you can say with the great hymn writer, this is my story, this is my song, praising God's Savior all the day long. Praising my Savior, I mean to say, all the day long. And then he expands on this deliverance and transference in verse 14. In whom, what do we have in Jesus? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is about the ransom of a captive or prisoner of war from slavery. And this word recalls Israel's ransom from slavery in Egypt. Now we've been rescued from a greater slavery to sin, evil, and death by the new exodus of Jesus' death and resurrection. We couldn't set ourselves free. Captives can't set themselves free. We needed someone from the outside. And, Jesus, and Paul is saying, in this beloved son, you've been liberated and set free. And alongside of that, you've been cleansed. You've been given the forgiveness of sins. A blessing to us as individuals and a blessing to the new covenant community. This was always a part of a vision of the final restoration of all things. When God would act in his climactic way, there would be the forgiveness of sins, he says in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36. And it's Paul's way of saying, this has happened. You're now part of this new covenant community in which you have been liberated and freed and redeemed. You've been forgiven and now you stand qualified, sharing in the inheritance of the saints in light. If you are in Christ, you have been forgiven of all your sins. And if you've entrusted your life to him, that is true. And if you haven't, that is an open offer to you. To come to him and believe. To trust your life to his. That you will then be forgiven. There is no condemnation, no past is too dark, no deed too ugly that you cannot be forgiven but you are free. And this is what is most true about you. Paul wants them to be animated in thanksgiving because of the, the defining reality of their lives is what God has done for them in his son. And there is great reason to give thanks for this. So Paul prays. And I would love for us to pray this for one another and for this church here because he's praying for the church in Colossae that they be filled with the knowledge of his will so that they could live this amazing life that God had called them to live of fruit bearing 30, 60, and 100 fold, being empowered by the power of God, by the, the Holy Spirit who is our power, and that they would do so as those giving thanks. One final thought is just that Paul prays for a community. We often, I think, can hear this. The ministers got away on a retreat last week and we spent some time talking about the communal dimension of our faith. And how central and important that is. But sometimes it's just easy to hear 
a prayer like this and think, well, how can I grow in the knowledge of his will? How can I grow in the experience of his power? How can I grow in giving thanks? And those aren't bad questions to ask. The, the individual dimension is real, but just recognize that all of the yous in this text are plural. And I would actually suggest to you that the way that we grow up into a knowledge of his will is in community with one another because you see things that I don't see and vice versa and we need each other in that to understand his will as a scripture saturated community. If you've ever read scripture with somebody from a different culture, you will know what a joy, wondrous experience that is because they ask questions that you never thought to ask because they see dimensions of who God is that you didn't see. And it's a beautiful thing. And we get to enjoy that in this community as well as a very international community. It's a great gift. We're doing this in community. That's how we come to a knowledge of his will. You think about walking in endurance and patience with joy. Well, what a gift it is to have brothers and sisters gathered around you who are on the road with you such that when you get weak and weary and tired, they are carrying you and your burdens. They are lifting you up. They are walking with you forward. This stuff can't be lived out on our own. There's no vision of the Christian life or the kingdom of God that's a bunch of isolated individuals. It is a radically new countercultural community of love that we are invited into. And Paul is praying for that community in Colossae to grow in these ways that they might grow to maturity. And that's true for us at Park Street Church. It's a communal life that we've been called into together. And it's in this community that we will grow up even more into a knowledge of his will into an experience of his power and a leaning on that and into the reality of giving thanks together for his great work in our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your word and we thank you for this prayer that you preserved for us from the Apostle Paul. Lord, we long to live lives that are worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you. And we pray that you would enable us to do so together, that we could be an answer to Paul's prayer here and grow in these ways as a church family, as a community of people. We thank you and praise you for the amazing transfer, for the new ground upon which we stand. And we thank you and praise you for this community that you have been so gracious and faithful too for two centuries and for the other churches in this city that love you and proclaim your gospel we thank you lord that we are part of a great family and we pray that you would strengthen this family that we might be stronger in you in jesus name amen